I want to give a shout out to Aventus, the world's leader in trade surveillance for digital assets. Trusted by Coinbase, Gemini, OSL, and many others, Aventus is also helping scores of other firms enter the crypto market. For digital asset trade surveillance, think Aventus. I'd like to also thank Kraken. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit kraken.com scoop to learn more. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy to use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone. No account registration is required. Download Exodus at exodus.com and you're ready to go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chapar, Director of News at The Block. We have a very exciting, special episode for you folks today. We have Kristen Smith, Executive Director of the Blockchain Association, joining us for a world record-breaking five times, the most frequented guest to come on the show. And there's a reason for it. She knows what's going on in DC. So we've got her on the other side of the mic, as well as my colleague, Colin, and we're going to really unpack everything that's been going on in D.C. with this infrastructure bill, with these angry old senators and the amendment that the amendment that's really kind of galvanized the entire community to sort of prevent, you know, this thing from coming into fruition. But it looks like it is. You guys have been down there. I know Colin was sweating through a suit at the Senate the other day, kind of trying to get the scoop down there. I guess the best place to start is what's the latest? And I know what's going to be probably unique for this show is we might actually have a live development while recording, but maybe we could kick it to Kristen and then Colin can kind of pepper in additional details. But what exactly has, has been going on? Like, I think a lot of people probably know exactly what the story is here, right? There's this amendment that is problematic because it kind of has a very broad definition for what a broker is. Um, but how did he even get in there on the first in in the first place? I had heard that you know, kind of Treasury was pushing it. How did this all come about, and where are we now? Yeah, well, maybe I'll start quickly with where we are now, and then we can kind of go back to the beginning and work up. But where we are now, um, as as we are recording, there there is a, a vote on the infrastructure package going on in the Senate. And included in that package is the undesirable language that Frank described that expands the definition of a broker under the tax code to include or potentially include many different types of entities that don't have the information required to comply. So these are miners, stakers, software developers, um, entities like that. But I think what's amazing about where we are is that up until the very end, the crypto industry put up a fight against this amendment like no other thing I have experienced in my 20 years in Washington, D.C. I mean, we went from zero to 60 overnight, and we have caught the intention of the entire policymaking class in Washington, and they are all now trying to figure out who we are and what we're about. So even though we didn't succeed in the very end in getting the language fixed in the Senate, 
I think we have succeeded in that the Washington community knows that we're a force to be reckoned with and wants to learn and is going to set the stage for a very different conversation than we've been able to have going forward. But how this all came about to begin with is an interesting um, bit of a mystery because for months, um, really for almost two years, our tax working group at the Blockchain Association has been working with the IRS um, and more recently with uh, Senator Portman's office and uh, who is on uh, the Senate Finance Committee, which is the committee in the Senate that does tax writing. And we had a tremendous amount of back and forth with his staff. They seem very interested in crypto. We did a lot of educating on crypto. We brought various crypto policy issues to them. We suggested ideas that could be included in the legislation. And one of the things that Senator Portman's office was interested in is this information reporting issue, because today, as this audience probably knows, uh, traditional cryptocurrency exchanges don't provide 1099 reporting to most of their customers at the end of the year. And the reason for that is because crypto is a little bit different and the IRS has yet to issue regulations to how to do that. So for those exchanges to have comfort that they're doing it correctly, they need to have some guidance to follow. And so this is a totally reasonable thing. It's good for the IRS. It is good for cryptocurrency exchanges because it makes their customers happy when they have you know less difficulty filing their taxes at the end of the year. So all of that is welcome. What was a surprise is when... Senator Portman's office reached out, you know, now more than two weeks ago and had this expanded definition of a broker in there. And at first I was like, oh, they must have made a mistake and let, let's get back to them with some changes and they'll fix it. But it wasn't a mistake. I mean, originally they were calling out decentralized exchanges and they were calling out peer-to-peer -peer transactions in the original version. And that, we believe, was at the direction of Treasury who wanted to have the ability to collect information from those types of providers. And so that's what really sort of kicked this off was the inclusion of, of this expanded language. So Kristen, um, I promised I'd be tough on you before the show started, but last time you were on, you said that we wouldn't have to worry about Yellen, that she wasn't a threat, but it seems like she's got her fingerprints all over it. So yes. Yeah. How did that how did that shift happen? Well, Yellen since taking up when when she originally came into the Treasury Department, she hadn't had a lot of background or briefing on crypto. And there was a, kind of an effort to try to get her educated from a couple of different, you know, points of view. And um she initially seemed very neutral. But I think now and I, I think you know, part of it is, you know, when you're sitting at as the Treasury Secretary, you get briefings from your Treasury Department all day long about anti-money laundering and terrorist financing. And she has has sort of emerged, whether it be because of those sort of criminal issues or just because of the debate around CBDCs, she has become increasingly um, skeptical of these issues. The, you know, you have to remember Treasury is a big place. The IRS is part of Treasury. And this is, I think, an administration that wants more information, not less. And so I think we're going to continue to see actions out of Treasury. Um, the other interesting player in all of this is Gary Gensler at the SEC. He's been very active in this president's working group that is working on stable coins. He is very, you know, close uh, to Yellen and is kind of an advisor to him. And he, he seems to um, have a lot of uh, very well-developed thoughts on on 
the additional regulation that is needed for the cryptocurrency space. So yeah, the past couple of months between I think the climate narrative and the ransomware narrative and you know what's going on in China, I think that Yellen has become kind of increasingly skeptical of this space. And, you know, along with Gary Gunsler wants to bring, you know, more regulation into this space. I mean, that was part of what was so surprising. I mean, yesterday, part of what was, you know, the big news of the day was the fact that they had gotten Treasury on board with a compromise between the senators involved in the initial, in the two competing amendments. I mean, what do you have any thoughts on that sort of compromise? Yeah, well, the compromise, I, I think what nobody expected in all of this was that crypto was organized enough to challenge anything. Um, you know, I think the poor staffer in Portman's office who had been engaging with us and, you know, was pushing it back against the, the changes we were bringing to her early on after we saw this language, I don't think in a million years she ever thought that this would be an issue that could potentially hold up the entire infrastructure package. Well, that's an important point right there. And I don't know if you guys saw this piece by Dante Desparte at Circle. It dropped this morning in Fortune. The infrastructure bill, this is the headline, is a coming of age moment for crypto. And that is one way of mm-hmm. looking at this, you know, with the glass half full, which is a year ago, maybe even six months ago, certainly not three years ago, which is when I think you started the Blockchain Association, we would not have been in a position or the space would not have been in a position to hold up a multi-trillion you know, trillion dollar plus infrastructure package. The landmark sort of bipartisan deal, um, one of the largest we've seen in history, crypto and folks like you and, and Coin Center and others were able to manage to sort of get even a back and forth happening which is probably one silver lining. I I want to get both of your takes on that. Yeah, no, I think it's an absolute silver lining. And there were some new players at the table that haven't been at the table before. Yeah, Um, like where did Ted Cruz come from? Well, he become a... I mean, even, yes, new players on, on, uh, in government, but outside of government. And it was sort of interesting because it was the first time we were all really brought together on an issue as intense as something like this. But, you know, Blockchain Association, as you mentioned, has been around for about three years now. And we've grown quite a bit. When we launched, it was just me and 10 members. And now we have a full-time staff of 10 people and 46 members. And so we've grown and become more established and and well-known in Washington. Coin Center, which is an independent think tank, um, has been here much longer than that. I mean, I think they've been around seven, maybe eight years. Also very well established and has a wonderful reputation on the Hill. Still, these two organizations are very small compared to others. I do have to give credit to the Coinbase policy team. They are all new. Most of them are just new to their jobs within the past couple of weeks. And they brought a tremendous amount of heft to the to this fight and that they have really good people that had good connections in government, good connections with other stakeholder groups. And I hadn't even met them until, you know, a couple days into this fight. And now I feel like I know them because I've been on probably five dozen hours worth of phone calls staring at them on a Google Meet screen um, over the past week. But they were phenomenal. And then, you know, the other one that deserves a ton of credit is Fight for the Future. Fight for the Future is uh, an independent grassroots organization. And they are very interested in this issue, particularly from the privacy perspective. And they were able to turn on their tools. And um, at the last time I got, there were over 40,000 calls that were made within a number of days into the U.S. Senate. 
you know, that is what got the attention of the senators because they, you know, when your phone's ringing off the hook and when every time you look at your phone, you see you have, you know, hundreds of tweets about some obscure crypto thing. You're like, oh, wait. Do they care? Do they care about Twitter? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I actually think Twitter for most of them is what they get to the most. So if you send an email into a Senate office, they have these, you know, CRM systems that take the email and you put it's in the database and then it gets batched with all the like emails. And then two weeks later, a staffer will write up a response and send that response to everyone who sent that email. Right. So, you know, senators will get reports like what are the top issues that people are emailing about for the day. But but that is kind of a process that isn't immediate. Right. There's a little bit of a lag time there. Phone calls, they somewhat notice, um, particularly the poor staff assistants that are answering the phone calls and taking the messages. I mean, those all get logged in and there's usually some communication there. But most of these guys carry their phones in their pocket. Maybe not some, maybe not all of them, as we as we've discovered, the Senate is an older place, not a younger place um, in the past couple couple weeks. But for most of these guys, they want to know what people are saying about them. And they are looking at their phones and they are looking at Twitter and they get their news from Twitter. And so the fact that we were able to mobilize on Twitter um, did not go unnoticed by members. Um, and I think it's a very effective way to at least give them a sense of what the issues are that they should care about and, and to cause them, in this case, I think it caused a lot of them to think twice about, you know, just sort of taking what Treasury said at face value because they were getting a lot of pushback on social media from it. Yeah, I mean, especially at kind of the 11th hour with, you know, Ted Cruz's involvement. I mean, Toomey has been picking up over the past couple of months in his sort of work with crypto, um, but Ted Cruz's involvement, I mean... I did not see that coming. I don't know if you, it, what your thoughts were in advance of that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, he gave a pretty, um, a pretty strong speech on the floor, and and actually, Ted Cruz introduced a very favorable amendment that would have gotten rid of the entire broker definition directly. And you know, Texas is a big, you know, Bitcoin mining state, um, and I think that there are a lot of uh, people in the crypto community who live in Texas, and so he he is on it there. But he sees I, the dollar signs. He, well, he, it's, it's, you know, crypto's freedom, right? He, so that, that's also a good message. But I, I think I think really what was the game changing moment as I look across, you know, the last two weeks as, you know, we went day by day and we're sort of escalating our tactics day by day. The game changing moment was when Wyden wanted in because we've been working with Wyden for years or trying to work with Wyden for years and hadn't quite captured his attention yet. But when Wyden understood that software developers could be on the hook for this, he's a guy that, that gets the internet, he gets software, he gets the free speech implications around that, mm. he gets the privacy implications around that. And having him enter in and be willing to lead an amendment was an absolutely critical moment. And, and it was incredibly critical because over the past few months, as Colin, I'm sure, has witnessed alongside me working here in Washington, the crypto had become increasingly more partisan and Wyden was able to kind of narrow that. Um, so I think his participation and interest in this space was was crucial and um, not and it's something that we wouldn't have been able to do, you know, if Coinbase didn't have their policy team on the ground, if uh, Fight for the Future wasn't involved if the Electronic Frontier Foundation hadn't weighed in. And so getting these 
this broader coalition of, of interested parties um, and people with different relationships involved was really, really key. And I, I don't think we could have conducted this level of a campaign a year ago because there just weren't as many people involved or working on these issues. One thing that we picked up on was the, the degree to which this whole situation made for some strange bedfellows. Coinbase was a blockchain association member, then kind of, you know, left after you guys took on another member that they had some beef with. What did that look like to sort of like get the whole gang back together? And how does that speak to maybe the maturation or the tenacity of this space? But that's certainly something that, that people thought was interesting, especially given all the different new stakeholders that you're talking about. Yeah, I um well, first, I should say Coinbase wasn't the only company that was active in this space, um, you know. Kraken emailed their entire user base. Digital Currency Group has lobbyists on the ground and board members who are very engaged. Um, Stellar Development Foundation has a lobbying team. So there were a lot of companies involved, but Coinbase being sort of this large publicly traded company, unlike most crypto companies or organizations, they actually do have a name on the Hill in the Senate um, and in the House. Um, they're, they're sort of maybe probably the most recognizable crypto brand. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I've, it's no secret. The Blockchain Association has only ever lost one member and that member was Coinbase. And um, and so, you know, I always like to rant about Coinbase. If people know me, I, I rant about things all the time. So, and I have to give them full credit. Like those guys came to play and they were awesome to play with. And I, and I think the difference was that for the first time, for a long time, Coinbase didn't have a Washington office, right? So for a company of that size to not have, you know, a head of government relations and people full-time thinking about policy and building, doing outreach with government and other stakeholders, it's hard, I think, to get the message to the, the senior level that you need to kind of work with others and you need to be engaged. But they, I think, got that message really last December when we were fighting Mnuchin on the rulemaking, right? And they have since brought in a guy named Faryar Shirzad, who was great. They have a team um, of people with relationships on the Hill and other stakeholders. And, you know, and again, I feel bad for these guys. They're all, they've only been there a couple of weeks and they have thrown into this battle, but they were, they were wonderful to work with. And, um, and I think important and keeping everyone together. And, you know, this team at Square similarly, you know, was very involved in these, these discussions. And so it's a, it was great that everyone was able to put aside any past history and just kind of come together and, and work as a team. And that also meant when we went to these offices, they didn't have to negotiate. They felt confident they had, they had the industry and community backing because we were all working together and then presenting unified positions to, to the senators. Hmm. You know, not to be negative here, but despite all of this, ended up not going through. I mean, that final, that final moment that was, Oh yeah, we lost. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I do think that was also, okay. The way in which that final amendment uh, got shot down, that seems like that's going to get people in the crypto industry who might traditionally, you know, uh, try to be completely apolitical or try to ignore whatever's going on DHC. That seems like a moment that people are suddenly going to obsess over for a while, because that was such a technical way for this, you know, technical, tangential way for this particular way of changing legislation to fall through. Yeah, I mean, I think what's unfortunate about all of this is this was not how the process is supposed to work. Mm. This definition was added in 
in the last minute in a must move bill without being vetted through any stakeholders other than treasury. I mean, that is horrible, like legislative work to do something like that. And I think there wasn't, the thinking was, you know, you don't need to run it by anyone because we're just going to do it. And that's, that's what treasury wants to do. And then the pushback we got initially from Senator Portman's office was incredibly strong. It's nope, this is a done deal. We've all locked arms. There's no, no opportunities for changes. What is the minutia of, of that process look like? You, you just ring the staffer there that you know, like, what did that look like? You know, it's, it's a, initially it's a lot of back and forth at the staff level, right? And then it sort of escalates to like the chief of staff level, and then it escalates to the member level, and then you've got other members talking to members, and so, so yeah, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of dialogue happening between the stakeholders on the outside, and then you know we sort of select different people to liaise with different offices. You know, you kind of have to divide. It doesn't help to have five people calling the same person, right? So what we have to do is agree on the strategy and then divide up and have different people reach out to different members, come back and share that information with each other and figure out our next move. And so, you know, I do actually think, I've said this a couple of times to a few different people now, but the working from home and working, you know, on Google Meets calls and signal chats and in Google Sheets, um, I mean, this is, we were able to move incredibly quickly and get all of the decision makers, um, at least on the outside, together to make decisions very quickly because we were able to share information and work well remotely. You know, I still haven't met half of the people I've been in battle with <laughs> the past two weeks in person, and but we're able to, you know, in a moment's notice, um, you know, share breaking developments and get on in front of each other to, to look at each other and have a conversation. And so I think that was actually very helpful. I think other industries that have been around for a while that aren't as, you know, sort of internet savvy and digitally savvy as the crypto world, I don't think they would have been able to move as quickly as we did. I want to give another shout out to Aventus. Aventus is the world's leading platform for digital asset trade surveillance, market risk, and transaction monitoring with some of the largest crypto exchanges and institutions in the world using Aventus to drive efficiencies in their regulatory operations and mitigate the risks of fines and reputational damage. Visit AventusSystems.com today to find out why 80% of the firms who take a custom demo become clients. Shine a light on your trading today with Aventus. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Now with the new Kraken app, it's easier than ever to buy and sell over 60 of the most popular cryptocurrencies on the go 24-7. Simply download the Kraken app, connect your bank account, and start investing for as little as $10. Just a minute is all it takes to get started. I also want to give a special thanks to Exodus. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy to use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone and interactive charts let you view the price history of a specific asset and your portfolio's performance over time. Sync your wallet across multiple devices to access your funds from anywhere. Maybe the best part is Exodus is integrated with the Trezor hardware wallet, making advanced security easy for everyone. Download Exodus at exodus.com today.
Have any of those staffers or folks that you engage with early on, maybe Senator Portman's office specifically, have they kind of, you know, now that this the dust is in the process of settling, you know, maybe have a specific or close contact there that, that kind of has expressed surprise that there has been this amount of pushback that there is this energy behind the space. I, I don't want to say maybe they feel like a little silly or arrogant, but are you starting to get the sense that maybe people are like, oh shit, this crypto thing is, I actually have to care about it. Yeah, I, I don't have any sort of specific anecdotes to share there, but no, I think generally, you know, I've had outreach from old friends on Capitol Hill, from people who've been longtime lobbyists in Washington, kind of being like, oh man, you, you're onto something here. You were ahead of the curve on this. Like this is a show of force that's absolutely amazing to watch. And mm. no, this has not gone unnoticed. Um, and I do think at the end, you know, we saw some comments from Senator Portman on the Senate floor where he specifically talked about miners and stakers and software developers. And so I think that, you know, he was able to learn in this process and, you know, we're maybe not 100% in line with him. I think we've brought him a long way towards understanding this space and realizing that there are a lot of individuals out there that, that are working on this. I, I think in general, for most senators, the concept of a decentralized network is not something that they fully understand, right? They're used to looking at all sort of economic activity happening where you've got you know, one big centralized company or firm that is building products and these sort of networks um, where you have individuals or companies that are all helping with the operation and maintenance and, and building of the networks. This is a very new concept for them. And in all fairness to the, most of the core Senate, I mean, the Blockchain Association hasn't had the time or the people or the resources to educate all of them. For a lot of them, this is very new stuff. Um, so now going forward, I think we'll have we'll have more people that uh, that we can work with to get in front of these offices and get them up to speed. So hopefully we won't be, you know, sort of caught off guard by something like this uh, down the road. And instead, it can go through a process where there is legislation that's introduced, it's vetted with stakeholders, it goes through a committee process. There's an opportunity for amendments. I mean, we didn't get our vote, and I think if we had gotten a vote on the White Amendment, I think we had 55 votes. I think we would have won. We just weren't able to get the vote. Mm -hmm. The unanimity is pretty rare. But I mean, going forward, is this, I mean, is this a done deal? Admittedly, I need to, you know, preface this for listeners. It is currently uh, Tuesday, 1134. They are doing roll call to have a vote in the Senate on this actual bill. It is expected to pass. I mean, what is the kind of outlook for this, you know, going into the House or going forward? Yeah, so the good news is there's been a lot of outreach um, from the House. Um, we had a letter from all four co-chairs of the Congressional Blockchain Caucus. Uh, there was another letter that included a group of congressmen um, that were early on supportive of the Wyden Amendment. We saw Ro Khanna from California tweeted in favor of it. So there is bipartisan interest in the House in trying to fix this. And what we're going to be doing in the you know sort of days and weeks ahead is trying to figure out how best to show that there's a groundswell of support for changing this language on the House side. Uh, the challenge we're going to have is that the politics in the House are 
Uh, I don't want to say they're above our pay grade, but they might be above our pay grade because what what's going on is what Nancy Pelosi wants and what her, uh, sort of the progressives in the in the House want is this three point five trillion dollar human infrastructure bill, and there's sort of a, a trading game going on between the White House and the Senate and and the House. So the House is sort of willing to just move the bipartisan bill in exchange for getting their human infrastructure bill done, this this broader $3.5 trillion package. And so the concern has been all along that there may not actually be an opportunity to make amendments in the House. Um, If there is, we will be there and we will have amendments and we're putting our lobbying team together, the kind of the extended community, every lobbying firm that's available Um, and mapping out where the House relationships are and getting ready to push through. Um, But the worry is that there might not be an opportunity to make any changes and that this package might just go through the House as is and then make its way to the president's desk. So um, if that happens, then the real game is going to be in the Treasury rulemaking process at the IRS and figuring out what these rules actually look like and um, that will be an open process. Um, there should be comment periods for that. And, and so so it's not as if we've, you know, as this vote is tying up, it's not as if this is, you know, the end of the road, um, but this was probably the best opportunity we had to fix it. And we came really, really, really close. We had a deal we had Treasury sign off on the deal. We had Portman and Cinema sign off on the deal. We had Chuck Schumer sign off on the deal. And that wasn't enough because of politics around the broader infrastructure bill. Yeah, no, I mean, that was that was a pretty amazing, you know, last minute assembly of forces, I suppose. But I mean, going forward, how are interactions with the Treasury going to look? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, you know, listen, we... Um, the Treasury has a lot of different pieces going on, right? They have this tax piece. They have anti-money laundering piece. They're involved in the stable coins. We have done outreach and dialogue to various people that work in Treasury. Um, I sort of get the sense that there's differing opinions in different parts of Treasury about how to go about doing this. I do think, though, that the White House has had conversations about this amendment over the past couple of days. And so there are people over there that are starting to think about it now. And, you know, I think for anything that needs to get through Congress, Congress knows that they can't just sort of blindly do what the agencies are asking them to do because there are political consequences to that. And so I think that Treasury is um, hopefully going to want to be a little bit more engaging with the community. You know, they've got a lot on their plate right now, but we're hopeful that this will be an opportunity to improve the dialogue with them and um, to make some some headway toward understanding why those of us who work in this space um, and that are part of the broader community are so passionate about it because there are some important, you know, it is an important driver of innovation. Um, it is, um, you know, the privacy issues are important. And so hopefully with Treasury, we'll, we'll be able to have a better dialogue going forward. I mean, is there, are there difficulties with that? Because you don't get quite the same uh, sort of public events where everybody is, you know, watching the Senate pass legislation, the Treasury can operate a little bit more behind the scenes and free from a little bit more pushback. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the process, I I think one of the things that was 
so interesting about the process the past two weeks is just what you pointed out. It was very open, right? We, 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 everybody was watching the Senate floor. Everybody was watching press conferences. It was, uh, you know, it was a the community could almost participate because they were able to see all of these things themselves. A lot of the work that Coin Center has done for so many years and that we've done at the Blockchain Association for so many years um, has been these sort of behind the scenes conversations where there aren't these um, public moments where you can witness and, and be a part of it. Um, some of it, you know, some some hearings and whatnot have been kind of moments that have brought the industry together. But yeah, you don't see, see these public events um, as much as there is with Congress. And so, so yeah, so Treasury, you, there's just different tactics you use with them, right? You come in with a lot of substance, you come in with people who have a lot of seniority and, um, you know, usually they're open to listening. Um, and so, you know, now we have a better opportunity to do that because we also have the political backing from some champions on the Hill that we, we didn't have before. Like Cruz, apparently. Ted Cruz. <laughs> well, this has been really exciting. It is pretty surreal, you know, to see um, crypto elevated to kind of the forefront of the conversation. And there's still a bit of snarkiness, you know, you see on Twitter. Can't believe, you know, we're, we're, we're being held up by something that to most people seems trivial. But at the end of the day, it's not. I have a dumb question. Can you just write another law that says this part? of that other law is wrong? Yeah, you can change the law with a new law. But that would be that would be tough. Um, it's not impossible, but yeah, it's not gonna happen overnight. And so basically all these companies that would fit into the language or be perceived as fitting into the language of a broker will now move offshore to be compliant? First, we gotta get through the house and then yeah. this thing has to law, right? And then there's going to be a rulemaking process at Treasury. So we do have a lot of time to work to do this. And we talked a little bit about that. Well, this I want to be respectful of your time. And I know that there's a lot going on. But Colin, do you have any lingering thoughts? You know, what, what should sort of, you've kind of been looking at this since the beginning. You know, nothing really surprises any of us in this space, but maybe we'll give you the final word. I mean, I suppose to that, you know, that final point, part of the issue with getting another law passed that would sort of clarify this one is that everybody waits for these massive public pushes of attention to get any sort of legislation through. So that's why this ends up being 2,700 pages, right? And that's one of the issues is a lot of times these kind of tailor-made bills, they either die or they end up wrapped up in these giant legislative packages. Yeah. Yeah. No, we need a vehicle, right? Mm. Um we can get bills introduced, but we can get a lot of co-sponsors to sign on to sort of these standalone bills to fix it. But it's finding, it's very difficult to move things standalone on the floor. And, and, and the reason that is, is often because people will hold them up to try to get their own things attached to it. Sort of like we saw with Senator Shelby objecting to the unanimous consent request to move the compromise. And the, you know, that happens with, little bills too, right? That you try to move. So it's, it's not impossible to do, but you really sort of need, you know, this sort of once a year, once every couple year moment where there is a massive package, you want to be in that package um, in order to get fixed. So, you know, certainly something we can work on, but, but getting something, you know, from start to finish as a standalone bill is um, an uphill battle these days. And I guess the one other, the one small thing that still can change 
and we'll update the posts that this podcast is wrapped into as if this Senator Shelby changes his mind. We just saw someone tweet um, a few minutes ago that he didn't really have a problem with the amendment that he blocked, but simply blocked it because he couldn't get his defense amendment in. So this was purely just for retaliation. He was mad over the process, as were several other senators, because there were a lot of amendments, like the Wyden Amendment, that senators wanted to have votes on before they went to this cloture vote, where they basically limit debate and don't allow amendments. And so, yeah, Shelby's objection to the compromise amendment wasn't on the substance of the compromise. It was a tactic to try to get a vote on his amendment. And yeah, that that is sort of where we where we lost it. But um, at this point, I think it's too late because the well, it is too late because the vote on passage has started. started And assuming that goes, which I think it will be, then that bill is now out of the Senate and on its way to the House. One thing that I think I know I said we'd wrap up, but where did they come up with the the main reason why this thing is in there is because they want to try to balance the expenses with what they'll bring in additional revenue. And they've come up with this number. I think it's $30 billion. Yeah, it's like $28 billion. Where do they get this number from? So there's there's two different uh, sort of entities that, that score, you know, score meaning um, evaluate the cost or the revenue implications of different legislative positions. One is the Joint Committee on Taxation and the other is the Congressional Budget Office. The methodology for how they come up with those numbers is a black box. Yeah. And um, you can often, you know, congressional staff will go over and try to argue certain things. Trust me, I would love to see where they got that number from. Um, <laughs> but that is not knowable information. <laughs> to me, that seems awfully high. I'm sure there's some number there because it is hard to pay taxes. Um, it's It's complicated and it requires a lot of record keeping and note taking and analysis. Um, but yeah, that $28 billion we think is is way too high. Um, and so it would be great to see how they came about doing that. Sometimes I think it's just they need to like make the math work. And so they think of the numbers. Yeah, but totally. I don't know that, but I just, I just suspect Looks like that. serious fake news. That being said, the, our friends at the, the JCT are good professionals. But, but yeah, sometimes I think there's some politics around yeah, the numbers. Yeah, definitely. Well, you guys probably have some work to do today. So I want to thank you, Kristen, for coming on the show for your your fifth time. Maybe we'll give you, you know, give you some breathing room. We'll, we'll try to get Naraj on or something. I know he doesn't like podcasts that much, but we can't constantly just uh, be uh, relying on you. It's a single point of failure almost. No, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm always happy to do it and always happy to see you and, and Colin yeah. as well because they bump into each other in D.C. quite a bit. So. Oh, nice. Well, uh, Colin, and thank you too, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening. Kristen, before we, we get you out the door, where can people learn more about what the Blockchain Association is doing? If they want to become a member, what do they do? And where do they yeah. find you? Well, our website is theblockchainassociation.org. If you want to reach out to us, probably just best to go through contact at theblockchainassociation.org and we can route you to the right person. If you're a crypto company and you're not yet a member, definitely um, reach out or you can follow us. Um, on Twitter, and the, the Blockchain Association Twitter handle is at BlockchainASSN. My Twitter is at KMSmithDC. So lots of good updates on Twitter, but membership is uh, 
way better than a, just following on Twitter because you actually get to be part of the process and, and the decisions that go into the policy. Totally. Well, thank you guys so much. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll talk to you again soon.